societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. Today's episode of The Wicked Library is presented by HorrorMade.com. From horror haikus to author and filmmaker interviews to original art and dark fiction reviews, HorrorMade.com has a terrifically fun collection of dark things that are sure to delight. Whether you're looking for a little inspiration or maybe a place to share your short stories and creepy artwork, HorrorMade.com is your delightfully dark home for horror. The critically acclaimed author of Demon's Dolls and Milkshakes returns with 15 tales of horror and suspense. With everything here is a nightmare. From zombies in the Old West to a young boy tempted by the devil. From vampires with romantic longing to an abandoned lighthouse haunted by vengeful spirit. From a serial killer getting unholy justice one haunted English race car. Nelson W. Piles invites you to explore the landscape of fear, suspense, and horror. Take his hand and hold on tight. Remember that whatever you find there, whatever you see, no matter what you might think it could be, know this. Everything here is a nightmare. By Nelson W. Piles. Available in paperback and Kindle at Amazon.com. By Burning Bowl Publishing. Warning. The Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you It's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs>
Donna. Or Tara. Donna stared out the window, chewing gum behind intensely scarlet lips. Nobody knew the original color of her hair. Not even her. Right now, it was deep violet and looked like a bucket of water had fallen on it. It was parted down the middle, so you could mostly see the heavy black makeup staining her green eyes. A badly drawn face decorated her bare shoulder. The phone in her silver-ringed hands buzzed, and she slid her fingers over the greasy surface. How's the drive? Are you dying yet? Donna smiled, and her chewed black nails whizzed over the pad in reply. OMG, I've been in this car forever. She hit send and stared out the window again. Her music blasted in her ears. It had no words, only screaming to a beatless din. Donna claimed to be able to dance to it. Her little brother suddenly stretched her earphone from her head. Who are you talking to? He asked annoyingly. Tara, Donna said as she yanked her head away. The earphone snapped against her skull. She fumed as she glared vehemently at Stephen. His blonde hair was all over his face, making him look like a mop head. She took her gum from her mouth and stuck it in that yellow mess. The phone buzzed again. The dad talking about fam time again? I think he finally gave up, lol. Donna smiled malignantly and added, It's not like I can hear him anyway. She hit send. She glanced at her dad, a shrewd-looking man with pale blue eyes and graying blonde hair. He was a supervisor in some company that Donna had no interest in, except the phones that they sold. She could get any phone she wanted for free because of her dad's position. Right now, she saw his thin lips moving, and he seemed to be talking to her and getting angry. Donna gazed back defiantly and looked out the window again. Suddenly, Stephen yanked the earphones off her head. Dad's talking to you, stupid, he said, furious about the gum in his hair. Get away from my stuff, you little worm, Donna bit out as she snatched her earphones back. Miss Carter, Donna's dad said stiffly, you will answer me when I speak to you. Fine, Donna said as she rolled her eyes. Yes, sir, Miss Carter, he corrected, still eyeing her through the rearview mirror as if he would flay her alive. Yes, sir, Miss Carter, Donna responded sarcastically. Her father's eyes flashed as he pulled off the side of the road. There was a small tailgate going on not far away. It was manned by a little bent Native American woman who looked to be about 90. Scrumptious cooking fire smoke rose from the back of the rickety building. It looked like it was slapped together with plywood. A sloppy sign was painted in fading letters in front reading, Terra's. It seemed very odd in the middle of nowhere, but amused her that the stand had her friend's name on it. As far as Donna could see, there was nothing but dirt peppered with sad-looking bushes that resembled lint balls. The sweltering landscape had been like that, for she didn't know how long. Get out of the car, Miss Carter, her dad snarled as he yanked her door open. Um, honey? Mrs. Carter whispered weakly. Despite her husband's great wealth, She looked ready to pick cans off the side of the road with her dumpy, formless skirt and crocheted shawl of periwinkle blue. Her doll hair was bleached. Donna languidly got out of the car and automatically turned her back to her dad 
as he removed his belt and gave her three good whacks. Donna felt more humiliated than hurt, for the old woman watched quizzically from behind her stand. And then, to Donna's horror, she came out. What was she going to do? Scold her dad or commend him? Donna didn't know which would be worse. The woman was wrinkled as an old tree, dressed in a faded yellow camp dress with black trim and pale slippers. Her graying hair was parted down the middle into braided pigtails. A beaded hairpiece was clipped on either side of her head. She leaned on a small cane and looked ready to fly away if the wind blew too hard. Reaching up to Mr. Carter, she tapped lightly on his arm. Mr. Carter turned around in irritation. What do you want? Come by, she urged in a heavy accent. Come by. You want money? He asked her, bending over and resting his hands on his knees as if she were a little girl. Donna rolled her eyes and started tapping the buttons on her phone. OMG, my dad just spanked me in front of some old woman. I'm like 15. Now he's making a fool of himself. Come by repeated the old woman again, and grabbed his hand. She started pulling Mr. Carter towards the food stand. All right, all right, I'll humor you, said Mr. Carter condescendingly. Donna leaned against the car as her mom and brother sank into their own worlds. Donna stared out over the desert, waiting for Tara to answer. She was quite sure they weren't supposed to be in this place. They were somewhere between Utah and Arizona, but leaving one and entering the other she wasn't sure. Her dad probably took a wrong turn again and wouldn't admit it. He was such a jerky idiot. She sat back in the car to get away from the sun. It was already burning her sweaty skin and melting her ink. Ugh, come on, she groaned, sliding her finger over her shoulder. She wiped the ink on her black shirt. Sad about your creepy face? Stephen asked heartlessly. Shut up, Donna bit out as she endeavored to fix the melting visage. She had to draw upside down, which made the face old and wrinkled. It was her trademark, though, so she couldn't let it be destroyed because she was marooned in this Martian landscape. When was Tara going to answer her? After a while, a car came up the burning road and slowed to a stop beside them. A native rolled his window down and asked Mrs. Carter if she needed help. Mrs. Carter started and shrank in her seat. Oh, no, she said as calmly as possible. We're just buying food. The man stared at her as if she were insane. Shaking his head in disgust, he drove away. Oh, my, Mrs. Carter murmured under her breath. He didn't look very friendly, did he? Yeah, Donna responded sarcastically. Nice people never ask if you need help. What was that? Mrs. Carter wondered absently. Donna rolled her eyes and snapped the cap back on her pen. Whatever. She started text messaging her friend again. I hate traveling with these idiots. We're in the middle of nowhere. I can't wait to get back home. The old woman was suddenly at Donna's door, offering her a package of silver foil. Eat, she said. Finally, something edible, Donna said and took the package. She opened it and found fry bread and beans inside. Donna almost recoiled. She hated beans. 
at least the tasteless crap her so-called mother cooked. These might be decent. Thanks, I guess. Make you feel better, assured the old woman, in a tone that put Donna at ease, despite her fears of further humiliation. She hobbled away, and Donna's dad got back in the car. He tossed the other silver packages on the floor, where Mrs. Carter didn't dare touch them without permission. They drove on, and on, and on. Donna nibbled at the fry bread for a long time before cautiously licking the beans. They actually didn't taste too bad. Finally, they came upon slight civilization, where houses and some stores were visible. It was already late, and Mr. Carter was too tired to travel anymore. He didn't even bother to ask Mrs. Carter if she would like to take over. Her driving skills were as competent as her mind. They drove around forever looking for a motel of some sort. There was none. At least, none that they would try. They might come away with bedbugs. We'll sleep in the car, Mr. Carter said with finality as he pulled off the side of the road a little outside of the town limits. Whatever, Donna groused. She leaned her seat back and stared up at the ceiling. She didn't know how long she was like that, but when the moon was high... She heard slight scratching at the back of the car. It moved to her window, and then the old woman's form appeared in the moonlight. She placed her hands on the glass and stared at Donna with wide eyes. They seemed to glint like animal orbs in the dark. With a gasp, Donna sat up and realized that she had been asleep. Nevertheless, she checked to make sure her door was locked. The moon was still high in the sky where it had been in the dream. That was when she heard, Donna! It sounded like someone shouting somewhere in the vast desert. Donna! She didn't know why, but Donna slowly opened the door. The night air was freezing, such a polar opposite to the sweltering afternoon. Donna! The voice called again, Donna stepped out, wondering at her own sanity, but the voice beckoned like a magnet to another. The cold air made her mother and brother shiver, but Mr. Carter continued to snore softly without a stir. Donna walked into the desert. An owl with scarlet eyes flew overhead, staring only at her with those gigantic orbs. And then she spotted the old woman's figure standing in the middle of the desert, She had a bowl in her hands. Her eyes were bright red. But Donna walked to her anyway. What are you doing out here? Donna asked. I need fingers, said the woman in a clearer accent. Give me fingers. Donna jerked awake in the blistery heat. She quickly checked her hands but found them intact. All the doors were wide open, and she was alone with the dusty breeze. Getting out of the car, she licked her moist lips. She could still taste the fry bread grease on them. She wanted more. Mom? She called. Dad? Steven? She looked around. Everyone had probably gone off to eat somewhere, 
and had left her behind on purpose. A little distance away, she spotted a few houses and decided to go to them. She didn't want to walk, but then, to her delight, she realized that she had the car keys. Her stupid dad never let her drive the car. He said she was underage, but unbeknownst to him, Tara had taught her to drive. She would drive his car now, serve him right for humiliating her yesterday. Jumping gleefully into the driver's seat, she drove recklessly toward the houses. That was when she beheld the old woman who had given her the fry bread, sitting in the rear seat where Stephen had been. What are you doing in the car? Donna asked indignantly, strangely not afraid. Hungry, Donna? The woman asked. Of course, Donna grumbled. Everyone left to eat without me. The old woman smiled and remained silent. Donna pulled into the drive of the first house she came to and jumped out. By then, she was so angry she wanted to hurt everything. She marched up to the door as the res dog scattered in her wake. She banged on the door. When it opened, the native woman who answered screamed in horror and slammed it shut. What's your problem? Donna snapped angrily. I'm hungry. Let me in. She pounded the door with her fist. Sirens wailed in the distance, and soon cop cars had surrounded the house. Donna rolled her eyes. The woman had called the cops on her. How dare she call the cops on her? It responded pretty fast for such a broken-down community. Police jumped from the cars, aiming their guns at her. Talk about an overreaction. And then she spotted her mom and dad behind the police, staring at her with wide eyes. They were the culprits. Fury boiled Donna's blood. She felt ready to go mad. How dare you? Donna shouted fiercely. How dare you call the police on me? You thought I stole your car? She marched towards them. Stay where you are, one of the police bellowed. More of them joined in, shouting furiously at her until she could hardly understand what they were saying. I was hungry, Donna yelled, still advancing. I was hungry. The cops opened fire on her, pelting her with rubber bullets. Screaming in agony, Donna fell to the ground, and the police jumped all over her. Mr. and Mrs. Carter stared fearfully through the glass into their daughter's hospital room. She paced to and fro, her hair veiling a manic visage. One sleeve was ripped off and her upper arm was bandaged. A small, thick window looked out into the dismal asylum hall. She cut the face into her arm with her nails before we could stop her, the doctor was explaining in a professional, detached tone. He looked at them. You'll be having your son's funeral today? Yes, Mr. Carter responded quietly. We we had no idea she was losing it, Mrs. Carter practically wailed as she broke down in tears. One of the Native Americans in the town said she was bewitched by Tara. You're grasping at straws, Mr. Carter snapped impatiently at her. Donna was mentally unstable. Tara was inside her head the whole time. Be quiet. But how could the natives know Tara when they never knew Donna at all? You saw her text messages, 
All to herself, saved in the drafts, Mr. Carter said angrily. He was a very practical man and had no patience with stupidity. Tara's face was drawn on her arm this whole time. But the fry bread that we bought from that old lady, her stand was called Tara's. Why would Donna have an old Native American in her head? The stand was not called Tara's. Weren't you even looking? Mrs. Carter's small mouth fumbled defensively. She seemed not to have the strength to do battle with her overbearing husband. To her weak, adulpated mind, she was not so sure that there really was a fast food stand in the middle of nowhere named Terrace. Did the Native American man who had stopped to help them even see the stand? Did he think they had broken down? There was something about Donna's reaction to the situation that Mrs. Carter couldn't compute. Her thoughts floated incoherently from one subject to another, but could not really focus on the images of her son's hideous death. Suddenly, Donna spotted them. Her green eyes flashed, and she rushed the door like an animal. Mrs. Carter yelped and clapped her hands to her face as she was jerked out of her reverie. I was hungry, Donna barked angrily, violently yanking on the unyielding handle while scrabbling at the thick metal door. I was hungry. That's no reason to punish me. No reason to hurt Tara. She snarled like a dog and gnashed her teeth. Then her voice changed. When we get out, we'll get you. Mr. and Mrs. Carter backed away at the asylum doctor's discretion. The two of you had better go now, he said as Donna pressed her maniacal face to the window and glared at them like a devil. She's bewitched, Mrs. Carter insisted with a shudder as they passed outside into the balmy summer air. Cars, music, and the bustle of the city made it seem there wasn't a mental hospital sitting right in the middle of it. How cold and heartless did it appear to Mrs. Carter. She's mentally unstable, Mr. Carter retorted, unlocking the car doors. His dumpy wife would be in there with Donna next. Those hideous patient gowns would suit her. Now be quiet. He had to get into the city and forget about all this, never speak of it again. They got in, and Mrs. Carter once more removed her son's death certificate from the glove compartment. As her husband drove through the bustling city, over and over again she read, Cause of death, homicide due to cannibalism. She shuddered and stared out the window. She couldn't see the crowds of people, shining cars, hear any radios or smell the restaurants and car exhaust. Stephen's pain-wracked cries filled her ears. She had to run to him in the desert, but his screams silenced before she could reach him. And then, behind the dehydrated bush, she saw Donna crouched over his bloody remains, devouring his body with sick relish. How calmly she had walked back to the car and sat inside while she and her husband ran for help. It was Tara, said the natives. The witch in the desert got to Donna. But the doctors said Donna had a split personality. Donna was Tara. The car stopped at a red light, and Mrs. Carter stared out the window at the crosswalk. So many people were hurrying across. But one stopped close to the car and gazed at Mrs. Carter through the window. It was an old Native American woman in a faded yellow camp dress 
with black trim. Greg, Mrs. Carter stammered fearfully. Look, she pointed. Mr. Carter glanced in the direction of her finger. What? he asked impatiently. Don't don't you see her? Mr. Carter rolled his eyes. I don't see anyone. The light turned green, and they drove away. Mrs. Carter glanced in her rearview mirror. Tara was still gazing back. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Don't forget, next week is the Big Wicked Halloween special hosted by Nelson W. Piles with some great wicked tales and, of course, an appearance by the librarian. Next week will also be the preseason launch for season one of The Lift. That's the show created by yours truly and Cynthia Lohman, who you've heard here on the show before. Narrated by yours truly with an episode written by... Wicked Library alum, Mark Nixon, who you've heard on this show before as well. Today's episode featured a story written by Julia Benali, Donna, or Tara. If you'd like more information on Julia and her work, please visit her website at sparrowincarnate.blogspot.com. You can also find her on Facebook and Twitter at Sparrow Cove. Artwork for today's show was created by Alex Murd. If you'd like more information on Alex and her work, you can visit her on her website at crazedpixel.com. You can also find her on Twitter at crazedpixel, on Facebook, Tumblr. Look around, you'll find her everywhere. Big thanks to Dean Bebbington for a great story last week, and also to Stephen Matico for the kick-ass art. Don't forget to visit our sponsor, horrormade.com. You can find work by the creator of Horror Maid, Jeanette Andromeda, here on the Wicked Library. She's done several covers for this season, and she's got a ton more excellent stuff over there at HorrorMade.com, so go check it out. Please share the terror. Share the show and help us grow. Tell a friend about us, or maybe that weird guy you saw wandering out in the desert yesterday. The best support you can give us is to rate us in iTunes. Ratings are free, and they mean a lot to us. Follow us on Twitter, at Wicked Library. Find us on Facebook and subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google. We're pretty much everywhere. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to get great prizes, bonus content, and more. You can sign up at thewickedlibrary.com. And now, Julia Benali. Talking with Julia Benali, the author of Donna or Tara, which is today's story. And I'll tell you, I really enjoyed it because it's a surprisingly dark tale with a lot of subtext. It's short, but there's a lot that's going on in the story. You very quickly establish a lot of information about the characters. And I think that's very difficult to do in in such a short story. But you manage to kind of reveal how these characters are all broken and reveal a lot of the dynamics between the family members, even within the first few pages. Was that difficult for you, or did that come pretty naturally with this story? I've been kind of trying to practice doing that because um, I was try- I'm trying to get a book published, and the agents are always stressing to you know get the characters out there, mm-hmm. 
and how they are in the first few pages. Yeah, you did a fantastic job with that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. There's a lot of subtext, and a lot of it is just the interaction between the characters and some of the dialogue and, and a little bit of the description. Um, I think that sometimes in a short story, it's easy for authors to be a little heavy-handed and try to give you a lot of information very quickly. And you do that, but you do it in a very natural way, which is is one of the first things that drew me into the story. There's a there's a lot of focus on respect for the for elders and the importance of strong family and the bad things that happen if you don't respect your elders and you don't have that strong family. And that was woven into the story. I don't know if did you do that on purpose or was that just kind of something that came naturally with the story because it was it was really well done. Oh, thank you. I I didn't realize that. I guess it, yeah, it did come naturally. Yeah, it just was a natural thing that came in. I didn't realize it until you told me right now. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's uh, when it's a deep part of your culture, I guess, that it just kind of flows naturally into the story. Yeah. Well, my, my grandparents, they would, they would kind of talk like that sometimes, mm-hmm. but not very much. I didn't live very close to them for when I was younger. But I know when I when I did come back to the reservation, the uh, older ladies would always tell us about that. Excellent. You know, you do something in this story that I always enjoy. You can take the story in two ways, depending upon how you want to take it. You can take it on, there's some mental illness going on here, and there's a split personality. Or you can go the other route and to take it as a supernatural element where there actually is uh, you know, a witch that's drawn to her and basically possesses her and takes her over slowly as time goes on. Is it something where you just kind of woke up one day and you had a dream and you wanted to put this down? Or was it something that uh, you kind of pieced together slowly? Or, or how did that come together for you? I had to travel up to Utah several times and we had to, had to drive. And so we came across... Um, a way to get back to Arizona faster. I was like, let's go that way. I don't want to spend 11 hours driving, you know, when we could cut off about two or three hours if we went this new route. Mm-hmm. So we we did. And I we went through a place that looked just like that, a, where I have it set. And it was, it was just hot and miserable. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is awful. <laughs> and... So we finally got out of there, and I got home, and I was like, I, I have to use that place for something. Yeah. And that's where I got the, the background from. But when I originally started writing the story, I was just going to leave it as a, a witch and out in the desert. But as it kept going, it, was, it kind of formed by itself while I was writing after the initial thought process. Yeah, it's a lot of fun when it does that. You have the the basics that you start working through, and it starts to kind of get its own life, and it breathes on its own, which is kind of neat. Yeah. So what drew you to telling stories and to writing? When I was eight years old, my grandma had the birthday, and I had nothing to give her. And so I picked up this book, and I really loved it, and I wanted my grandma to see it. But I was eight, you know, I hadn't, I didn't know I could just mail it to her. <laughs> I, thought, I just kind of started copying it off. And then afterwards, I was like, I don't want to do this. I want to write my own. Yeah. 
I did. And I started writing little stories for my mom and for her birthday. And then uh, after that, you know, when I was in junior high, I was like a recluse. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I was very, I was one of those loner, dorky kids <laughs> that are over there. Most of us were. <laughs> and so I, I was, I would sit alone at the lunch tables or whatever, and I would just kind of sink into my own head. And then when I would start writing, it was really, really fun. And then um, one of my teachers um, got out this story, and it was one of those that you kind of don't know the ending. And she's like, finish it. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't want to, but then I really started thinking and I was able to finish it. And how I finished it was kind of creepy and it was really fun. And I'm like, I really love this. So <laughs> that's why I love writing. Excellent. And it's been a passion since then. So that's cool. Um, have you had any, any storytellers in your life who have inspired you, writers or, or traditional tellers? or? Actually, my mom and dad, they would, they would always tell me stories. Mm-hmm about their childhood and they were always so funny and you know my dad he took Goldilocks and the three bears and he just made it so funny and saying how you know Goldilocks was smelly and (laughs) so I I just I just really loved it if I could twist the story differently and make it funny or scary or whatever and so anyway my dad was that way and my mom was that way too. It's excellent. Yeah, so you're carrying on a tradition there. Now, I I know that you mentioned in um, an interview with uh, Wicked Library alum Gwendolyn Keist that um, you advise newer writers to avoid uh, gore and sex in stories. And I was curious, if is that because you feel newer writers tend to rely on that as a crutch or because it's something that you, you're not fond of in stories? Well, I, I'm not fond of that in stories. I feel like it tends to take away from the story itself. Mm-hmm. And usually when that appears, it really seems to me that it comes out of nowhere. or And it strikes me as they don't know what they're doing, you know. So they have to put something like that in there as if to shock you. Mm-hmm. And I know for, for a while... I was a slush pile reader for a sanitarium magazine mm-hmm. and I would get these stories and read them. And one of them was just like really gross and grungy. And that you, and that one, you could tell that was a new writer. And so I was just, you know, you don't need that stuff mm-hmm. to make a good story. So I feel like it's unneeded and it's disgusting. Yeah, there's. I mean, there are there are some times whenever I feel it works in stories because um, it's really about context. I mean, it has to be something that's organic to the story. I mean, like you said, if it's your if you're just throwing it in there because you want to shock someone or you think just because there's a bunch of blood someplace that it's going to be scary, it it doesn't mm-hmm. work that way. Um, I mean, your story definitely has some some visceral elements in it. Um, you know, there's blood, there's there's cannibalism, but a lot of it occurs off screen. There's stories that, like, you know, you have a creature that, you know, I mean, if, if you're dealing with, like, a werewolf or something like that, you're obviously going to have some blood. You're going to have some gore. But, you, like you said, it can't come out of nowhere. It's not something where you just yeah. turn the page and there's just, like, what's all this? When you first started writing, did you find yourself falling into that same trap where things were a little more gory than they needed to be? Yeah, I did. And, um, 
my mom was like, that's disgusting. Don't do that. So I did it. I stopped and then I found that I was able to focus on what was important in the story and the storyline itself and developing the characters and not so much into how much blood there was. Yeah, so there's a balance there. I mean, that's one of the things that I thought you did well is that when we're dealing with things that people are afraid of in horror, death is obviously a big part of that. And, you know, blood is a very strong image. So if it's used properly, I think that it can enhance a story rather than be the core of the story. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about um, how you normally transform an idea for a story into the actual story. Well, usually I try to figure out where it's going to take place first because like the background and if it's going to be in the mountains or if it's going to be in the city will determine for me um, what is going to happen. For my last story that I did, it was going to be in the mountains and I had to figure if this, this car that was supposed to break down, how far away it was supposed to be, that way it would give me enough time to make every the chase scene that came after make sense. So then, and then um, after the background is done, then I can, then I can start writing and I can see it like a, I guess like a painting Mm -hmm. and how everything will look and which way it's going to go. Then I start writing it. And then after that, the story seems to just form itself. And as long as I keep the background and everything in my head, then the story works around it. And then after I get through all that really gritty, hard first draft, then I can come back and look at it and see if um, what exactly the main story is and what parts I want to pull out. And then it just seems to come together. Do you have any uh, technique or any tricks that you use to keep yourself from becoming blind to phrases or typos? Well, after I finish it, I leave it for a day. I come back and I look at it again. And then um, I go through all the edits and everything, and then I leave it. Then I have somebody else go back and look through it and read it out loud to me. Mm-hmm. Then I leave it again for another day or sometimes even a week and so that I can look at it again with fresh eyes. And another thing I found very helpful is reading it backwards. That is a very good one. That way I don't see the story I'm not looking at. I'm just looking at sentences. Yeah. It's really boring, but it works. <laughs> What's some of the best advice that you've gotten personally, either from another person or in something that you read or something that you saw that you feel has made you a better writer? The lady, she called it the rule of three. If you're going to have um, like a conflict and your character comes across it, the first time and they discover something about it to make them learn and they come across it the second time and they learn something new so when they come across it the third time they're able to conquer it and she said no matter what short story novel whatever make it three because if they don't run into it like if they run into it more than three times, it gets tedious. 
yeah. if it's less than three, it's not enough. So that was one of the things that I just really appreciated. So tell me, what are some of the things that you're working on now that people can look out for? I have this story. It's called Pamela. That takes place here on the reservation. And that one's not a horror story. It's just about this lady. And she has this enormous crush on this guy. And he takes her out on a date for the first time. And the date just completely falls apart on her. Then um, I'm working on this book. And it's called Pariahs. Mm-hmm. And that one is a dark fantasy on a completely different planet I made up. And it has a lot of those Native American elements. And lately, I have just realized it has Japanese elements, too. <laughs> <laughs> so that one, I've been working on that one and trying to get that one published and have agents look at it. Mm-hmm. I have another horror one coming. That one's here on the reservation, too. That one is has to do with a graveyard, and that one has a lot of cultural elements in there, how Apaches view the graveyard. You know, you're supposed to stay there. If you go through the graveyard at night, you're supposed to stay there, and then the ghosts will watch over you. But if you leave the graveyard, they'll follow you home and torment you. Yeah. So that one's what that one's about. Very cool. Where can your fans and folks that want to learn more about your work uh, find out more about you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Sparrow Cove. And then I have a blog at sparrowincarnate.blogspot.com. And you can just find me on Facebook. You type in my name. Excellent. All right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyrighted of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was performed by Nelson W. Piles. The Voice of Society 13 was performed by Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was written by Anthony Rosick and performed by Novus. All other music in this episode was performed by Disparition, Dark Mood, and Kevin McLeod. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production. NinthStory.com Producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and creator, Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 617. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on. The old one in the desert's still going to find you.